Emmanuel, from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. As we approach another Christmas day, we should know that, we should know already what it means for us Christians. But have you asked yourself what it means to the secular people out there? What is uh, the impact of Christmas on people who are each year further and further removed from the Christmas story? For those who are too busy to believe in anything supernatural, let alone believe in Jesus. Too busy to go to church but never too busy for, I suppose, for Christmas work parties and to generally try and have a great time around this, this season when families and friends get together. So for, for this reason there is, a, there is an increasing uh, pressure to replace the, the Christmas greeting, I don't know whether you realise or not, to change the Christmas greeting from Merry Christmas to Happy Holidays. And slowly but surely in the name of religious tolerance. We have seen the meaning of the traditional Christmas uh, somewhat diluted as time goes on. It is another example of people happy to go along with the form of Christmas but not the substance of it. We want the form but not the substance. Now for the Jewish people there were various religious festivals for them to celebrate their faith. We, we know this from the Old Testament. The question must have arisen, however, as the early church started to break away from its Jewish roots. How would the young Christian church celebrate something unique to Jesus Christ? For many years there was certainly association of the Passover, which is the biggest of the Jewish festivals, the Passover feast, and and then moved that across to to Jesus' death and resurrection because that's, for us, that's where it really had its true fulfilment. But what about the incarnation of the Son in human flesh? Just recently, um, they celebrated Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the, in, in Jewish tradition, is the inauguration of the second Jewish temple. And that's where they, in the intertestamental period, that's when they, uh, that's when it happened. But then it also became the festival of lights. So I suppose that's the closest to, to what we have as Christmas between the, the Christians and the Jews. So how would Christians celebrate then the incarnation of the Son of God in human flesh? It's interesting to see the different approaches taken by the, the writers of the New Testament. They all seem to approach the momentous significance of this event, of this event and differently. If you were reading the Gospels for the first time, 
you would notice this straight away. Mark doesn't mention, the Gospel of Mark doesn't mention the birth of Jesus at all. It's almost as if Jesus simply appeared on the face of the earth as an adult ready to be baptised. The most popular Christmas passages appear from the Gospel of Luke because the good doctor uses language (coughs) that describe peaceful shepherds in the peaceful fields on a peaceful night going and visiting the Prince of Peace. The Gospel of John uses symbolism to describe the birth by telling us that Jesus the Word became flesh and set up camp among us and has shone his light on mankind. Now, as we go to Matthew, it's interesting that Matthew has none of these pictures. There are no angelic angelic choirs, no pronouncements of peace, no saving light. Matthew presents us something differently. He presents us with the raw side of Christmas. The struggle is, 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 is almost instant. The struggle to survive against all the odds is described to us in more ways than one. You have the wise men travelling all the way from the east for many days and, and weeks looking for a king only to end up in Herod's castle asking for directions. Matthew tells us about the marriage that was going to be over before it even started. Rather than settling down in Nazareth, however, they had to escape to Egypt as refugees. Meanwhile, Herod the butcher got on with slaughtering the infants. Now, most of our world can relate to this hard, raw side of the Christmas story. In fact, God understands all this and this is exactly why he, he came to our little cul-de-sac of the universe. And here are some facts about the Christmas story as presented to us in the Gospel of Matthew. First of all, Jesus came from the world. Jesus came from the world. Now this statement might appear, might sound heretical at first, but let me explain. Most of us don't get, don't get too excited when reading uh, the, the different genealogies which are found in the Bible, and there are many of them. But what do they do? What is their function? They are there to affirm that our faith, yours and mine, is based on and deeply rooted in a historical fact, not some obscure philosophy that somebody came up with. Yes, there is a genealogy in Luke, but this one in Matthew is making some very strong points. Here we find some, if you read the genealogy, In Matthew, you have some foreign girls with questionable ethnic and moral backgrounds included in the greatest genealogy of all. This is royalty we're talking about. So why are they there? To the Orthodox Jew, 
This would have been unthinkable. We need to polish that up. Because we want to keep the skeletons, the skeletons in the closet, right? That's where they belong. But not for God. For God, with God, everything is out in the open. Who do we find? Well, we find Tamar. Good old Judah. Judah is the head of the Jews, the clan, the tribe of Judah. Good old Judah fooled around a bit and got Tamar pregnant. And when Judah heard that Tamar was pregnant, he ordered her execution. And when she was asked who the father was, she produced the incriminating evidence and Judah's hypocrisy was exposed. Tamar went on to have twins, one of whom is an ancestor of Jesus. Would you tell that story in Sunday school? Then we have Rahab is also there. Rahab ran a gentleman's club in the ancient city of Jericho. She had heard of how God had delivered his people Israel, so the fame of, of the Jews and their God in particular was, was renowned. And, and, and so when these two spies turned up, she placed her faith in God and protected and hired these Israelite spies and then when the conquest came, they were, she was delivered along with her family. We also have Ruth. Although she was never, her character is, is, is not questioned, her culture and family tree came from Sodom. And she showed total devotion to her mother-in-law and adopted her God and her people. So even despite her background, despite her background, there is an Old Testament book named after her and it's a beautiful story. And yes, we also have Bathsheba. She must have been stunningly beautiful. But this, this genealogy doesn't give us her name. It simply says that she had been Uriah's wife. King David was the instigator of this scandal that started with him not going to battle, staying home, looking out his balcony and saw a woman having a shower and soon things got out of control. There was murder, there was everything. And the innocent child that was born died and of course the second child was Solomon. Now why is Matthew doing this? Why is he? Well, one reason I think is because he's providing support, emotional support for Mary by bringing together all the scandalous birth stories as a kind of historical, emotional support group. It's almost like Matthew saying, don't worry Mary, if you think you, you, know, you have people talking about you, guess what? Let's look a little bit more in the history of the family here. They all think they're so pure and everything else, let's just 
go a little bit deeper here. That's what Matthew's doing. You see, Mary was having a very difficult time explaining where her own baby came from. Who was going to believe her? Not only explaining it to Joseph, who was about to divorce her, but the rest of the family, the rest of the friends. This is a scandal. So Matthew's saying, Mary, you're not alone. That is the not-so-subtle message here. Secondly, Matthew does this to show that Jesus really did immerse himself in our messy humanity. No, in in Jesus' life there is no actual sin, no scandal, nothing to be ashamed of. But this didn't stop the people trying to demean him and say things about him. From the very moment of conception by the Holy Spirit, he was a man of sorrows and familiar with pain. Even though he remained pure, he was one of us. We could relate to him. He was accessible. He was approachable. So, Jesus came from us, the humanity. Secondly, Jesus came from God. The birth of the Lord Jesus is unparalleled in in human history, of course. And this word, Emmanuel, appears three times in the Bible. Twice in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament, in, in Matthew that we read. But before that, in the old prophet we read in Isaiah chapter 7, this is what we read, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin will be with a child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. God is giving us a very unique sign. Not, not the crossing of the Red Sea, not the manna coming from heaven, but a virgin giving birth to a child. Well, let me ask you, is it a sign every time that a woman gives birth? Well, every birth is very special. They are wonderful events. But let's be honest, babies are born all the time. So, they are not signs in the miraculous, pure sense of the word, But the conclusion here is obvious. The passage is referring to a virgin giving birth. That's a sign. And it is a sign of Emmanuel, Jesus. And the next time Emmanuel occurs in the Bible is in the next chapter in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 8. And sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Here it says that God, Emmanuel, owns the land of Israel. It points to his pre-existence. 
Emmanuel lived before the incarnation when he became a human baby. And the third time this word appears in the New Testament, it is the complete fulfilment, of course, of this prophecy. When the Old Testament prophets spoke of Emmanuel, I'm sure that the hearers would have been a little puzzled. But there is no mistaking it in the New Testament where Matthew writes these beautiful words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1.23 The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew even gives us the translation. God with us. That is who Jesus is, our God. He came from heaven above to the earth here below. He was born of a virgin because the Spirit of God moved inside the womb of a woman named Mary and made her pregnant without the seed, without the intervention of a man. So why are so many trying to discredit this very important doctrinal point by saying that in the end it doesn't really matter whether, oh, you know, Holy Spirit, Joseph, it doesn't matter, does it? Well, it does matter. I think I've mentioned before that one of the ones who didn't believe in the virgin birth was actually the Baptist pastor, Martin Luther King. didn't believe in the virgin birth. Personally, I don't know how you can call yourself a Christian without believing in the virgin birth. Because without the virgin birth, there is no saviour. Because there is absolutely no way that humanity can produce its own saviour. Because secular society continually tries to find a better way, trying to to build a better world. There's great talk at the moment using the COVID pandemic as, and this is the world, this is not some cuckoos talking about this, this is part of the World Economic Forum that meets in Davos. They're talking about the Great Reset. Let's start all over again. Let's forgive all the debt. Let's try and centralise our governments. Let's open up our borders. It's, it's not conspiracy. This is what they're actually discussing, guys. Read about it. But this is all being done without any reference to God or his standards. In fact, it's actually against them. Because the principle of nations is actually Biblical. The Bible talks about tribes and nations. But this is actually going against everything that we believe in God, what he told us. Therefore, just like all the other attempts, it is doomed to failure before it even starts. Capitalists, of course, tell us that uh, financial security is going to be our salvation. We notice how we even use the term 
save when it comes to, to save money, to, when it comes to our bank accounts, to save. We can't save money. What they mean, of course, is preserving capital. That's what they mean. But it's a misnomer. That somehow if you save money, that money is going to save you. What? It doesn't, it can't. The more we trust in our ability to save ourselves, the worse things actually become. And the, uh, I like this piece. Somebody put this together and, and uh, I'll, I'll quote it to you. It's very short. This is what he says. If our greatest need had been for information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so God sent us a saviour. Yes, God came as a saviour to save us of our past sins, our present ones, and to save us from a future in hell and offer the promise of eternity to those who believe in his name and his name only. And thirdly, Jesus came to the world. Jesus came from the world, came from heaven, but he came to the world. He came to the world to be with us. That is the real significance of God with us. So there are a couple of ways that we can look at this. First of all, we really don't want God to be against us. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus declares, he who is not with me is against me. It's pretty clear. And because the Bible presents us with many examples of people who found themselves on the wrong side of this issue. In other words, God was against them. Not because God is unnecessarily harsh or moody or capable of making wrong decisions, but because he is so very just and holy that there is only one way for things to turn out when you come up against God. You're going to lose. The Hebrew children certainly found this out when they failed to trust God in the desert. As a result, this whole generation wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and perished without ever receiving the fulfilment or seeing the fulfilment of God's promise. So we really don't want God to be against us. The second thing is we want God to be for us. If you really want anybody on your side... It would be great to have God, wouldn't it? In the old days, I know, here we go again, here it goes again, in the old days. Do you remember the days, and I'm talking to the, I don't know, the 50 plus probably here, when we used to be able to play soccer on the streets? There wasn't that much traffic. Yeah, on the pathway, cricket, you know, there weren't, that, there weren't that many cars, okay, so the danger of getting run over was pretty slim. So we used to just play on the dirt, 
paraglide, you play, you know, put a couple of goals each side and then all the kids come out from the streets and play soccer. And then obviously the, the idea is you're picking teams and you've got two captains, usually because of my size. Even then I used to be a captain. Um, um, and you, you pick and, and, and the first, you know, you sort of say, well, who's going to have first pick? And there was always one player who was good was very good. And, and, and you'd be saying, okay, I want to win the toss because then you get the first pick because everybody wants him on his side. If you could get him on his side, he's the best player, you're going to win the game. You know what? Imagine if that player is God. There's no competition. If Jesus is on your side, what have you got to fear? What? You're a winner already. Wow. That's why the Apostle Paul, I'm not making this stuff up, that's why the Apostle Paul said these famous words, if God is for us, who can be against us? Where is the opposition? There is no opposition. It's not even fair if God is on your side. But as fantastic as this ideal is, it's not as straightforward a proposition as it might first appear. Some would tell you that God on your side is a life of bliss and prosperity. But the Bible doesn't actually look at it that way. So you see, just about all of those who have had God on their side found the blessed road marked with pain and suffering, as well as many blessings. Even as far back as the book of Genesis, we find that Abel was in the right and pleased God with his sacrifice. God was pleased with him. What happened? Murdered by his brother. Noah was certainly on, on God's side. God was on his side. He was obedient, preaching for a hundred years while he built the ark. But he had to put up with mockery, hard labour and mockery for his troubles. So you're probably thinking, if, if that's the case, then I, I don't really see why having God on my side is such a great idea. If, if it means pain and suffering and, and there's no promise of you know, protection, and, and what's the point? I'll just, thank you, I'll just go on my own thing. And many people think like this. That is why the words of G.K. Chesterton are so true. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Because Christianity is the narrow road that leads to the narrow gate and very few choose to walk on it. The words of Jesus to the church at Smyrna from Revelations chapter 2 verse 10, Revelation 2.10. 
is what it says. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. And look at these words. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The rewards. Right there. And thirdly, we really need a God who understands. So we don't want to come against God. We want God to be on our side, but we really need a God who understands, understands what it's like. Jesus didn't just come to tell us how to live. He didn't just come and and, and preach from the pulpit. He also came to show us what it means to live. He has given us the most perfect example of what it looks like to live for God, what it looks like to forgive your enemies, what it looks like to turn the other cheek, what it looks like to care for the poor, to love one another. But even after he he left, even after he departed, he fulfilled the promise by giving us the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, to guide and empower us in our daily walk so that we would be able to live the Christian life. No longer did we have a, a distant God. Now God came near and showed us his very heart through his very Son. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 to 16. And, and, and I think this, this passage is really important, particularly if you're going through a difficult time, and I know many of us are. And sometimes you feel like that God is a little bit distant. No, no, no. He's there. He's here with us. This is what it says, Hebrews 4, 15 to 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us when? In our time of need. That is the promise. It's a wonderful promise. Jesus came to be with us now so that we could be with him later. So when the day comes to get to heaven, it will not be unfamiliar territory because our Heavenly Father, who we have been longing for all of this time, is going to be there. Sure, we we all say, yeah, we're going to meet with our loved ones, our departed loved ones again, That's going to be a bonus. The longing for every Christian heart is to be there in the presence of God for eternity. We are finally home. This is what we've been looking forward to. To know the Son is to know the Father. And in Jesus Christ, in Emmanuel, God put on human skin. He told us in no uncertain terms to sit down, to listen to his words, to obey them and then to go and build our lives upon him. And when trouble comes, 
He is someone who takes us in his arms when needed to comfort us, encourage us, strengthen us. What a name. The name of Jesus. What a name. The name Emmanuel. God with us. This is God's promise to the church of all ages. And on Christmas Day, that promise was fulfilled. And this is why Christmas is so special. Amen. Amen.